Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Really, this was a referendum on identity politics. You know, the idea that Indigenous, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, by nature essentially of their race, but also because of their assumed, you know, privileged position, they expected to have this extra form of representation to Parliament, a a voice, a non-elected voice. I never in in the world believed it would be defeated by what, you know, getting on for two-thirds of the country said, we don't want this. You know, it was quite decisive. And, and the reason was, I think people just felt, well, we don't want two classes of Australian. We're all citizens. We're bound together as equal citizens. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Nick Cater. Nick, welcome to the show. Delighted as ever to be with you, Brendan. It's so good to have you on. There are two things in particular I want to talk to you about today, and I, I really want to start with the voice. Uh, the Voice to Parliament referendum on the 14th of October in your wonderful adopted homeland of Australia, where the people have rejected the Voice to Parliament. So I'm sure most listeners will be aware of this now, but this was a referendum which would have, if it had been successful, it would have amended the constitution in Australia to allow for the creation of a body that would have been for Aboriginal people only to advise Parliament on certain issues And I think around 60% of Aussies said, no, we don't want this. So it's fallen flat on its face. A dramatic result, uh, definitely a a punch in the gut to the Australian elites. So I just want to start off by asking you, what is the atmosphere like down there now since this pretty resounding rejection of an idea that came from the Labour government? Well, there's a lot of despondency amongst the elite, as you can imagine, very long faces. Uh, And of course, they're immediately... Uh, jumping round and accusing the rest of us as being racist. That's their primary allegation. They've got other allegations too, uh, you know, that we are um, dinosaurs or dickheads, was what Ray Martin said. Ray Martin is a is a sort of, you know, long-time legendary TV current affairs host, and he's lost his any impartiality he's had. He's lost over this issue, like like most of the woke media. You know, they've been backing this thing home. But basically, I think the best way to understand it, Brendan, for for people who don't want to get into the weeds of Indigenous affairs in Australia, is really this was a referendum on identity politics. You know, the idea that Indigenous, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, by nature essentially of their race, but also because of their assumed, you know, privileged position as, as, you know, the First Nations people, as they call them, the people that lived here first, they they expected to have this extra form of representation uh, to Parliament, a, a voice, a non-elected voice, which would have influence over Parliament. Although, in, you know, on paper, it would not be able to block or demand that legislation be pulled. In practice, as the Prime Minister said, it would be a very brave Prime Minister who said no to them. So they would have all this moral authority. And, um, you know, it was just spectacular. I mean, I quietly hoped really from about January onwards, I got the feeling that this wouldn't get up, that the Australian people were onto this. But I never in, in the world believed it would be defeated by what, 
almost 61% to 39%. That's almost, you know, getting on for two thirds of the country said, we don't want this. You know, it was quite decisive. And, and the reason was, I think people just felt, well, we just, we don't want two classes of Australian. We're all citizens. We're bound together as equal citizens. Indigenous people have, a, have had the same rights for 50 years or more, you know, in fact, longer than that in practice. And, you know, they have every right and ability to, to make the most of this great country. Uh, but that's as far as it goes. You know, everybody, it was a great headline in the Sydney Morning Herald, which said, uh, it, it said, devastating results. Australians say Aboriginal people are not special. And I thought, that's sort of it, Brendan. In actual fact, I mean, as a as a classical liberal, I believe that every human being is special. Everybody's special, but nobody is more special than anybody else. And I think that was the essence of what people decided at that referendum. Yeah. When you mentioned that headline in your excellent piece for Spiked about the the, the rejection of the voice, it, it did make me laugh. And I did think to myself, yeah, they're not special in the sense that they're not more special than other Australians. And, you know, if one believes in equality, regardless of race, regardless of ethnic origin, regardless of one's skin colour, if you believe that all people should be equal, all people should have a fair go, as they say in Australia, then uh, it is right that there shouldn't be this extra body that allows an extra form of representation to a certain group of people on the basis of their racial origin. So I thought, yeah, that, that's a pretty good outline by the Sydney Morning Herald, you know. Yeah, because of the funny thing going on here, it's not just race, it's this concept of in Indigenous status which, of course, you know, a lot of people around the world hold Indigenous status, including, uh, according to the UN, the Palestinians. They fit into this category too. They're the sort of First Nations people of that part of the Middle East. So I don't think anybody's really kind of thought through this. It's It's been a lot of lazy thinking built on some, you know, sense of guilt or, you know, sort of we're fulfilling slightly that we've done something naughty with colonisation and stuff like that. And, and that they have to make amends and that, that, that therefore Indigenous people will always have this special status. It's helped my thinking, Brendan, to have to think through this because I actually don't think that's true anymore. I just think, well, they, they say, well, we, we've been on this continent 60,000 years. Well, no, actually not. I mean, the oldest person in Australia is 111 years old, right? So none of us are older than that. And, and uh, so, you know, it's it's basically because you have ancestors or some of your ancestry, because I think the figure is 95% of Indigenous people have some other uh, DNA in them too. Because of you, you happen to be fortunate to have ancestors that, or unfortunate to have ancestors that lived here before, um, you know, Western civilization arrived. You have some special status. No, I just don't think that that can work in a in a in a free and democratic liberal democracy in which we all have equal rights we're bound together uh, because we all have the same rights as citizens yeah absolutely and you know you described it there at the start as a resounding rejection of identity politics and i think that's why it's had repercussions outside of australia it's piqued the interest of people around the world lots of spiked readers in the uk and and other parts of the world have been really interesting interested in our coverage of this because I think people do recognise that this is not only a blow for the Labour government in Australia and for the chattering classes or the woke elites or however we describe them in Australia who, who and the business elites, in fact, who really rallied behind this idea. It's also a blow for the ideology of identity and for the ideology of, of judging someone according to their origins or their heritage or their identity or their indigenous 
character rather than by the fact that they are uh, uh, another member of society who may have good qualities or bad qualities, good character or bad character. You know, call us old-fashioned, but we do believe in judging people by character rather than colour. And isn't that essentially what the Australian people have said in, in this in this vote? Yeah, that's exactly it, Brendan. And I've compared it to the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution, which is the one that have essentially declares that the, the Constitution is colourblind. And the Supreme Court uh, revisited that earlier in the year uh, when they decided that universities should not be able to offer special treatment to African-American students, largely because if you do that, you know, if you offer some sort of positive discrimination like that, it is in effect negative discrimination. You know, if you're going to put uh, African-Americans at the front of queue for a limited number of university places, then it means that Asian-Americans and white Americans and everybody else has got, have got less places between them. So it, you can't do that. And I think this is what we've come to with this, this referendum. It is the 14th Amendment. The, the Constitution is colourblind. I want to ask you about the even broader repercussions of the referendum. Now, and and that's a, that's a, it's a pretty big repercussion in itself, the fact that so many Australian citizens have rejected the idea of identity politics. But there was more to it than simply the question of whether we, whether Australia should amend the constitution and create this voice to parliament, wasn't there? Because as you've written about, on the yes side, so amongst those movers and shakers in the political world, the media world, the business world, the celebrity world, it became very much bound up with their sense of moral authority in society and with their sense of themselves as the kind of people who are the best judges of what Australian society needs, how such Australian society should be organised, how Australian people should think about themselves and their nation. They, they really do see themselves as the best guardians for all of those ideas. So this was a a sucker punch to their moral authority, wasn't it? Which might explain why there has been this fairly rash or despondent response, as you say, from sections of the establishment? Despondent and foul-mouthed and just nasty. You know, I won't repeat it on a family podcast like this, Brendan, but, you know, some of the things that they were saying on on Twitter afterwards, it was just, but they are really angry, and, and I think you're right. And I, I, I'm very taken, increasingly taken with the way Thomas Sowell frames this in The Vision of the Anointed. So the, the anointed have this vision for the world, and part of that vision for the world is about themselves. You know, we are, not only do we want to change the world for better, but we are the sort of people who change the world for better. We're higher moral beings. You know, we, we've got a, a keener sense of morality and a keener wisdom than everybody else. And, and when they get, you know, slapped in the chops with a, a convincing defeat like this, which is very hard to argue with, incidentally, because it's compulsory voting here. Um, so it's very hard to say that this was a this was wrong in some sense, this vote. That is very hard for them. And on this issue, they've basically been dealt out the picture. They thought that they could, uh, you know, set the way we organise this just the same as they want to organise everything else in society, have it their way. And they haven't been able to. And they, they just be, you know, they must feel the sense of absolute powerlessness right now. Un, unusual territory for them. You know, for all their fine words, and they are very good with words, They've been unable to sway the Australian public. I mean, Brendan, as you know, and we might just go over this just to remind people haven't been following that closely. The establishment put everything behind this, everything. You know, the whole kitchen sink and everything else. They had every, uh, almost every major corporation in Australia was backing the voice. Qantas was backing the voice, you know. Qantas was making announcements when the plane lands 
welcoming us to country, whatever particular Aboriginal land we supposedly landed on, and talking about the voice. All the sporting codes, every major sporting code was on board, most of the media and, um, you know, all the universities, obviously, uh, and they're all pushing one way on this. And the Australian Electoral Commission, you know, we like to think they're going to be neutral in conducting this debate, but they'd arranged so that you could tick a box. There were two, you know, they asked the question, do you want an Aboriginal voice to Parliament? And then there's a box and you're supposed to write yes or no in there. Well, they decreed if you put a tick, they'll count that as a yes. But if you put a cross, that's an invalid vote. So all these horrible things were going on all this time, but none of it in the end could thwart the will of the Australian people. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah, it is extraordinary. And uh, I want to tease out why, well, firstly, why the Australian people rejected it so resoundingly and why it's being interpreted rightly, I think, by the establishment as as a bit of a blow to them. You know, one of the things that Jacinta Napiumpa-Price, the uh, brilliant shadow minister for Indigenous Affairs, I had her on this podcast a few weeks ago, just before the referendum, in fact, she made the point that, you know, the idea that this new body, if it had come into existence, the idea that it would be about empowering ordinary Aboriginal people was a joke. You know, it would do very little indeed to address the significant problems that Aboriginal communities, especially remote communities, face in everyday life. And you and I, Nick, have talked about those problems before. They, they do have some pretty profound problems in those communities. And she made the point that this was obviously a power grab by the activist class. And that activist class includes um, Aboriginal people of Aboriginal heritage, but also um, other Australians too, that kind of activist set that presumes it has the authority to determine the affairs of the nation and thinks it should have actual institutions that will allow it to do that in a, in a kind of fashion above democracy, above uh, attentions of ordinary people. So the referendum itself was not really about giving a voice to Aboriginal people, was it? It was about exacerbating the already existing voice of that activist class that exists somewhere on the outskirts of democratic life. It was about further empowering the, you know, the, uh, the, the Aboriginal elite political class. I mean, they, 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 it's quite a big group because if you've had, when you've had 50 years of basically a welfare mentality, you know, handing out government money in the billions of dollars every year for this program and that program or whatever, you, you do end up with a sort of rent-seeking group of, of uh, intelligent, university-educated, largely city-based, not, not exclusively, but largely city-based uh, Aboriginal people who've, who've made, this, made this their, their living, made a living out of this. And, of course, you set up an Aboriginal voice to Parliament. We were never told, incidentally, how much they'd be paid or how big the secretariat would be or anything like that. But, of course, it would be huge. 
it was just more sinecures, more jobs, more, 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 uh, another platform for them to, you know, be important in the public square. So they, of course, are really hurt by this because, you know, it's basically cutting off their meal ticket. And um, if, as I think will happen, this is really the point at which we realise what's been going on and that, you, you, you know, you can, you can give more political power to groups like this, but that has no effect on the ground, just as it hasn't in the United States. I mean, there's been no correlation between giving more political power to African-Americans and improving, you know, bringing them out of poverty. You know, the highest youth unemployment we've had amongst black people was when Barack Obama was in power. Well, they, you know, it, there's no, that's not the way to do it. You do it by other ways. So, yeah, it, it would have empowered them and actually disempowered you know, the people that need help because it further entrenches them in this sort of paternalist welfare sort of pattern, which is which uh, we just need to break out of. We need to give them the confidence and the ability to change their lives for good or ill. Yeah, very well put. I think that's that's a really important point. Just to focus a bit more on the response of the elites to this devastating defeat that they have suffered at the hands of the pesky electorate. You didn't want to uh, use the words of some of the influential people who've responded badly, but people can read your pieces for spite. It was things like, F Australia, F this result. And I did want to ask you about that kind of response, because I, I also saw some of that on social media and in some of the discussion. It went beyond the kind of normal response of saying, we lost, I'm upset, Maybe we need to get our ducks in a row and come back to this issue in a different way. You know, the normal way that uh, political people and political organisation would respond to an electoral loss, it went beyond that and became a bit more visceral, almost existential. It, it, it's like they recognised at some level their moral authority had just been quite seriously called into question. So how do you explain the rashness of the language and all that kind of response? Do you think there was it's a kind of pent-up fury that they feel for ordinary Australians and their temerity in calling into question ideas put forward by, by their superiors? Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. I think, but also at a very basic level, they are genuinely bemused. You know, they, they live in a world where everybody around them, everybody they talk to, everybody they trust has the same vision of the world and it involves things like special status for First Nations people, as they call them. They're bound up in this colonial guilt idea. All this is, all these are things which they don't, they never have to put to the test because they are just accepted. And what's happened, of course, is that those things have been thrown on their heads and they just don't know what's going on. You know, they're, they're, as ever, the, the reaction is to say, well, the people who disagree with them are either stupid or mad, or bad, or a combination of those things. And they've they've tried that, but I think even in their heads, they know that many of the people who've been arguing against the voice are certainly not stupid, and, and they're probably not bad either. And to have you mentioned Jacinta Napajinta Pais, who's the um, uh, brilliant um, Aboriginal lady who's the Indigenous Affairs spokesman for the Liberal Opposition, who's led this campaign. And, and of course, that's been confusing for them too. I mean, she's supposed to be a victim. You know, she's not supposed to be powerful and having a view of her own. She's supposed to go along as one of the victim class and and, uh, she's refusing to do that. You know, and that that upsets them too because it is a bit hard for them because she's a woman and she's clearly Indigenous. So it's very hard for them to sort of delegitimize her. But they have tried and there's been a lot of very nasty things said about her. Uh, but she's a tough woman, as you know. You had her on your podcast a couple of weeks ago. Which I thought was very, 
she gave a very strong performance. Yeah, I, I think she's been a heroic figure in this campaign for no against the voice to parliament for the reasons you've outlined there she has kind of really bucked the establishment the paternalistic establishment view that uh, an individual is merely a representative of his or her ethnic block and therefore they have to conform to certain views which you know coincidentally always seem to be the views of the largely white kind of liberal establishment, small l liberal establishment. I mean, she had a great, she, she did a great thing very early on. She grabbed, uh, I think it was on the, as they were leaving the Senate one day, she grabbed uh, Penny Wong. So Senate, Senator Penny Wong is our foreign affairs, is our foreign um, minister here. And uh, uh, as the name suggests, she's of uh, uh, Malaysian, Chinese Malaysian abstraction. And, and Jacinta said to her, I've had this great idea, Penny, we should have an Asian voice to Parliament. Then I'll know what you you people are thinking. <laughs> and it was great. Penny just exploded, but that, that just perfectly nailed the, the sort of patronising assumption about this voice to Parliament. That's brilliant. I, I love that. Nick, I want to ask you about colonial guilt, which you mentioned there, because it does seem to me that was an, an important factor, I think, in the, in the Yes campaign, in the, in the movement of the elites for this new voice to Parliament. Um, and it's something that I've clocked on the trips I've had to Australia. There is a there is a large component of colonial guilt within the Australian elites, if not amongst ordinary Australian people who have, who have a much fairer, rational view of their society. And of course, we have colonial guilt here in the UK. It's very fashionable now to beat oneself up over you know the crimes of the past, the crimes of history. And in the United States, they have it in bucket loads, you know, uh, all those movements to to redefine the the founding date of America to 1619, I think. I'm, I'm losing track of the, my dates. That's it, the 1619. 1619, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, when slaves first arrived, rather than 1776, when there was a revolution for freedom and, and democracy. So colonial guilt is in trend at the moment in, in Western societies, Anglo-American societies. I wanted to ask you about that. And, and, you know, talking about Jacinta Price, uh, there was one interesting interview where a journalist for The Guardian said to her, you know, do you recognise that Aboriginals still suffer from the echoes of, of the colonial past? And she basically responded by saying, look, do you want me to say that I still feel subjugated by the white fella? Because that, that's essentially what you want me to say. And, and it's not how I feel. So uh, talk to us a little bit about the ideology of colonial guilt and the role that you think that plays in a country like Australia for for the establishment. Yeah, you're right. It's a very strong undercurrent here and and it has been increasing in recent years, uh, I think because of the influence of the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, the sort of uh, roads must fall nonsense that came out of the UK, all that feeds on through here. But it's never really been thought through. I mean, and um, but but in the end, it, it just comes down to, the idea that should a child who's born in Australia today or a migrant who arrives from some current country, should they immediately have some sin laid against them? Is that fair? And if somebody is born on the other side of the ledger, they've got some Indigenous blood in them, just a little bit, you don't need much to be clear Indigenous, is it fair that they don't have that sin, they have a, an expectation that they're somehow going to be repaid. And I think that the idea of reparations, which has come up, it wasn't part of the voice proposal, but some Aboriginal activists on the fringes like Thomas Mayo specifically said, once we've got the voice, then you'll have to pay the rent, so there'll have to be reparations. 
that's when it becomes interesting, you know, because if you take, say, uh, Lydia Thorpe, who, you know, is a well-known uh, Aboriginal activist here, and she's part Aboriginal, part Anglo-Celtic. So when, when if they introduce reparations, would the Anglo-Celtic side of her have to pay money to the Aboriginal side? Or in Jacinta Price's case, where she's got two children from her first marriage and one uh, stepson from her second marriage. So two of her children will get the reparations and one will have to pay them. It, it, it just becomes quite unreal when you produce it to that level. So the, the whole idea of colonial guilt is, is just a dead end. And, and I, I think in the end, you know, the whole idea of having this sort of historical grievance which you pursue endlessly, there's never any closure to it. And in the end, isn't that, I don't want to make any moral equivalence about this, but isn't that just what's happening in the Middle East right now? It's this endless pursuit of historical grievance by the Palestinians, which is just leading us where they are at the moment. Yeah, I think that's, um, it's an important point because, you know, you just envision all the complicated race laws that could potentially be necessary in Australia if it were to enact something like the voice to parliament, a kind of racialization of the constitution, or even the idea of reparations. I mean, you would need a pretty complicated legal system of defining who is an Aboriginal, who isn't, how much blood do you need to be defined as Aboriginal? I mean, you really would get into the kind of situation that I thought good, decent liberal society had tried to free itself from over the past 50 or 60 years, which was the uh, ideology of racial thinking into something a bit fairer and a bit more decent. Mm. Well, we're back, we're back there, aren't we, Brendan? And, we, and, and I think, um, you know, if I can go back to the great Thomas Sowell again, in his latest book on social justice, he nails this. He says, well, we, it is like the eugenics movement, except for this. Uh, the eugenics movement thought everything came down to race. It determined, you know, your intelligence, your moral worth and everything else. The difference today is that the progressives today, or the so-called progressives, everything comes down to racial prejudice. So everything's driven by a sense of guarding against racial prejudice. And of course, it's, a, it's as completely wrong-headed as the thinking of the eugenics movement. Um, just a couple more questions on The Voice before we move on to um, another issue dear to mine and your hearts, which is the, uh, the green question. Some listeners may know that you're British-born, you worked here, for many years, and you uh, you moved to Australia and adopted it as your homeland. And uh, probably to the irritation of other Australian writers, you wrote what I think is the definitive book about Australian culture and the, uh, and the importance of, uh, of democratic culture in Australia. That's your book, The Lucky Culture, in which you make the point essentially that, you know, Australia is a pretty special country. The point you always make to me, me Nick, when, when you and I talk is that no witches were ever burnt in Australia, which I think is such an interesting fact, you know, and does distinguish Australia not only from Europe, but also from America. It's a modern country. It's a country that was founded in Enlightenment values more than any other nation. And you write in your book about how that is reflected down the centuries, down the decades, in the way in which Australia is is a country that believes in in everyone having a fair go. There's no real ruling class, although one may be emerging now or trying to emerge. You know, there is a kind of almost proletarian uh, view in Australia that, you know, everyone's equal, everyone has a chance, everyone has an opportunity, you make the best of it, go for it. And, you know, that's the, that's the kind of culture of Australia that you've written about very well. And the voice to parliament, and not only the voice to parliament itself, but the campaign for it coming from this new establishment 
trying to set itself up as the new ruling class. That was a real threat to that culture, wasn't it? It was. Interesting, this, this Australian concept, the fair go, both sides have used that argument. You know, the yes case said, well, you're not giving Indigenous people a fair go. What they mean by a fair go is you give them some extra support or some, you know, some sort of reverse discrimination sort of help, whereas we mean completely the opposite. What we mean is a fair go is that everybody has an equal chance and you make of it what you will. Uh, and and that is the great empowering thing about Australia. I've always felt, and it is under threat, as you say. You know, people um, are, are challenging that, and you know, the whole woke ideology is really uh, completely against that. So it is under threat. But that's why uh, you know the the result was so heartening in the referendum because this was very much absolutely explicitly an expression of the fair go. People said exactly that. You know, don't, we don't care whether you've been here five minutes or, or 500 years, you know, you, everybody has the same rights and responsibilities you know, as a citizen. You know, there are things that you, you have to do and there are things, benefits that you get, but all those flow equally. So it is very, it's still there. It's very strong. And, and just the very idea that some people, by, by virtue of their race, should have special rights just is abhorrent to most people. And uh, last question on this is just thinking about how would you locate the rejection of the voice in other populist uprisings we've seen in recent years? I mean, obviously there's Brexit, which is uh, my personal favourite. Uh, the, there was the vote for Trump, which is a bit more complicated, but was undoubtedly a blow to the kind of old technocratic elites in the United States. There have been numerous uh, ballot box revolts in Europe over the past 10 years against the established parties and for the kind of new outlier parties that people are willing to take a punt on. Um, do you see the rejection of the voice as being in that kind of stream of politics where you have ordinary people saying, look, you guys are going too far now. You're pushing too far with your eccentric ideologies and we're going to take a stand against. Ab- absolutely. It's in that mould. And I think, um, I, I, of course, I'm a bit biased on this, Brenda, but I happen to think we we did better than you or the Americans. I mean, a 61-39 is a pretty good result. What are you, about 52-48 or something? But, yeah, I, I, I sense this is a very important moment. Uh, I don't – we're too early to say where it goes because, of course, the, the establishment forces will be already working out how to get, get back in, in pole position on this and, and then they'll have something up there. You know, something will develop that will give them – the reason enough to come and poke their noses and back in everything and but so I don't know how it'll develop I think it, it largely depends on how the center right the conservative forces here respond because they're not used to winning of course they don't they, they, they possibly don't know what you do next which is just keep on marching forward till you reach the citadel <laughs> If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. 
This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spike yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. All right, Nick, I want to ask you about another question that is, is enormous in Australia. It really is, which is the energy question. One of the things that fascinates me most about Australia is that it is a real, it's an extraordinary hotbed of energy cultivation. I mean, particularly in relation to the coal mining industry, which is vast in Australia. Huge numbers of Australians are employed in this. Um, Australian coal is responsible for electrifying the lives of hundreds of millions of people around the world. I mean, it really is an extraordinary industry. Um, And then, you know, thinking of that kind of cultural divide between the ordinary Australian and the Australian elites, amongst the elite, there is a real condescending, disdainful attitude towards coal in particular, but the digging for and cultivation of energy sources more broadly. What's the current discussion there in relation to these things? I know that you've written, you've been writing on your Substack really interesting stuff about the renewables question and whether a country like Australia, or I would say any country, can really turn to renewables in a meaningful way. What's the current standing on the discussion about energy in, in Australia? We, we've just fallen for a massive delusion here, but I, I probably need to spell that out. So yes, you're right. Australia has some of the largest known reserves of coal, natural gas. You know, we've got, we've got lots of it. If you want to go into, you know, uh, if you want nuclear, well, we've got, I think the, the, the third of the world's known uranium is on our soil, et cetera. We've we kind of got this stuff um, to, you know, as much as you want, really. And um, in addition to that, actually, incidentally, that if you want to go down the sort of, you know, battery power car route, we've got just about everything you want to want to make a lithium battery in, in abundance. So we're very well positioned, but we've got caught up in this, what I think is just quite delusional push for net zero. So what, how are we going to do it? Well, we're going to do it through the sun and the wind. Like you'd know in Britain and, and all over Europe how this has failed completely. You cannot power uh, a modern economy. In fact, you can hardly power anything with intermittent renewable energy. You know, you get, you get, you may be all right. There are periods in the day here when, you know, maybe 90% or more of the electricity in, in South Australia comes from wind or solar for about five minutes. And, and then it dies down the end of the day, it's gone. And you've got to fall back on some backup source. It's kind of so obvious, Brendan. You just you just need always on power. You can't. It's like no other commodity. You've you've got to put. It's got to be a constant matching of supply on the grid with demand. And and you can't just say, well, you know, can you wait two hours for your electricity? So it, it's just a sort of madness has crept in. Uh, and I'm busy looking at this for a possible book about how and when. I think it goes back to the 1970s. But the idea of renewable energy. Uh, and and we have a government, a Labor government, that's got these massive ambitious targets, 82% uh, carbon-free electricity by 2030, which are impossible to meet because technically you can't do it with wind and solar. You just cannot technically do it. 
But if you try, you run into all sorts of problems. They've got caught up with that madness, as they did in Spain uh, 15, 20 years ago, to think, well, we've got an abundance of sun, so therefore we can have lots of solar power. Forgetting, of course, that you know, it, you've got to convert that sun to electricity and you've got to have it all the, all, all the year round. And what's happening in Australia, and this is fascinating because it's such a big country, as you know, is we're actually running out of room. We're running out of room to put these things because they are huge. Like you are talking about uh, solar farms or, or solar plants, as I call them, twice the size of Melbourne CBD that they're building or, uh, you know, wind turbines along ridgetops that are – uh, the, because they have to find somewhere that's windy and whatever, then they're going to the Great Dividing Range, which runs up the east coast of Australia, to stick these things. And, of course, much of that is just natural habitat. It's never been farmed, never been touched. You know, They're supposed to like nature, like koalas. Well, they're ripping into this stuff, and all the environmental regulations are being suspended. It is, I'm just so bemused by it, Brendan, that, that nobody's sort of calling a halt to this craziness, and it has all sorts of effects on local communities. You know, th- so the report came out about two months ago, which said that if you want to get to zero 2050 just with renewables, you would have to dedicate half the state of Victoria, a land size that size, to do it. At which point I thought everybody would say, well, well, we can't do that then. We'll have to think of a plan B. But no, they don't. So all this is going on. And at the same time, uh, we have banned. We're one of about 10 countries in the world where nuclear power is illegal. Yeah, and you go, what? Like, why? And, uh, and, and, and so the, the first challenge is to lift that ban. And, of course, the modern nuclear technology, small modular reactors, uh, have got enormous promise of putting them in Canada, like a Labour government or a left-wing government, li- liberal as they call it, but they're essentially the same as our Labour government in Canada is putting these things in. But our Labour government is too pure to say, oh, no, we can't touch nuclear. So there's this sort of Alice in Wonderland character about the whole debate, which fascinates me. And, and it, it, at the heart of it, Brendan, what it is is that you've got a whole bunch of people who think about climate change in totally theoretical terms. They don't think in practical terms, and they think about renewables in theoretical terms, and they never have an engineer in the room when they make these crucial decisions because if they did the engineer, would say, that's not going to work. You just can't do that. At its heart, it is a problem of the intelligentsia that they think because they know a little bit about something, they think they know a lot about everything, and they think they can make pronouncements, oh, we obviously need more renewables. But none of them have got a clue about the actual technicalities of using renewable energy or how you firm it up in the grid or how you synchronize it with a 50 hertz cycle, all these technical things you've got to do. So it's funny, I found myself suddenly, uh, you you shouldn't need to know about energy policy. It should just be one of those things that happens. But we're all immersed in it. You shouldn't have to know about synchronizing the grid. But we all know now because we have to know. And it's all because they've just it really is a problem of of the anointed taking their vision too far and refusing to accept that something doesn't conform to their vision. I just can't. Oh, you want to ask me another question? But I, another point I make, and I think this is crucial to what's happened in Australia. Up until eighteen months ago, in fact, when you were last out here, you would have known that the hot issue here was climate change itself. You know, is 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 man heating the planet? And if so, can we stop it? And uh, and that was easy then for the progressives to say, well, you're a climate denier, you know, you're a dinosaur. That was the one they'd throw at you. They can't do that anymore because we've legislated for net zero 2050 here, same as most of the world has. So that's that's it. That's the parameters we're working to now. 
And and so this is exposing the elite as as having nothing in the tank because they ref, they the, the ideas that they put up for getting to net zero net, net zero twenty fifty are so ludicrous and impractical and expensive and in the end futile that we, you know they are losing this battle too in Australia and I think that there's a very strong push on for nuclear and I think the very strong chance that we'll we'll be a new we'll be going over to nuclear energy before the end of this decade yeah it's um i really agree you know bring the engineers into into this discussion and the coal miners and the farmers you know (laughs) you know let them talk some sense to the anointed ones yeah that's a really good outline of where the current discussion is at in australia and it reflects similar as you all know very similar discussions in britain and across europe where the unreality of net zero, I think, is starting to hit home for some people. You know, the ex- the extraordinary expense of it, the destructive nature of it, what it will mean for farmers in particular, truck drivers, everyday living standards, our ability to go on holiday, our ability to drive to the local supermarket. All of these things, I think, are being thrown into sharp relief now by the pretty deranged commitment our governments are making to achieve net zero by 2030 or 2050. But you, you wrote recently in your, on your Substack about a report in Australia which made it sound like the shift from a fossil fuel society to a, a renewable society would be relatively straightforward and could be achieved in, in, a, in a certain period of time. But it, it then turned out that that is just not the case, didn't it? And, and I think the authors of the report itself had to say, oh, hold on, we messed up here. It's actually going to be incredibly difficult. So it, h- how much has the, has the unreality of the shift to renewables or the shift to a net zero society how 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 clear has that become in the australian discussion it, it is it's it's one of those things that is dawning on people bit by you know person by person and it's happened especially in the in the rural uh, regional districts of australia where they they actually face the reality of this they actually see these things going up they see what it takes to transport one 86 meter long bait from the port of Newcastle, about 500 kilometers inland, to the Yass Valley, and I, I, you know, I've been out because I just wanted to see, and I've, I've sat in a car driving behind this enormous cavalcade with about six police cars, and uh, it, it is just you think they've got to do this, it's, and then when this blade wears out, which which will probably be in about 15 years, they've got nothing to do with it. They've got to bury it because they don't have any worry, and you, you, and and country people have seen this. And uh, there's a funny, you know, the changing dynamic of this. I, I now find that I have a lot of very good friends and allies who were formerly members of the Green Party because they, they've, they've seen this destruction that's happening in the bush. I mean, this is genuine. It's just, just huge areas of native bushland, koala habitat and so forth getting destroyed. And they're horrified by it. But, of course, the Green Movement here, the establishment Green Movement, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and the Green Party itself are paralysed because they've committed to renewable energy, and now they can see some of the damage it's it's causing. They don't know what to do, and they're just caught in the in the headlights here. and And there's a lot of frustration building. You'd have seen this movement in uh, happening in Europe too, the group Dear Greenpeace movement, where young people are are writing letters, Dear Greenpeace, why are you against nuclear power? I thought you wanted to to stop climate change, you know. <laughs> So there's definitely this this two split in the green movement too, but yeah, it it is dawning. And what's happening is that the the, the communities affected by this, and there are many of them. I mean, I've been to them up and down the country. Each of them think they're fighting their own lonely battle against big renewables. 
because they're now getting together. They're organizing. They're getting on Facebook. They're organizing protests. And uh, the government is now realizing it could lose seats over this. So it is becoming a big issue. Yeah. And I think it's, I think a lot of people in Europe are, uh, uh, their eyes have been open to the sheer irrationalism of the religion of net zero. So, you know, I wrote recently about this discussion amongst the Irish government about eradicating 200,000 cows because the methane produced by cows when they fart and burp and whatever else they do um, is a significant contributor, allegedly, to uh, climate emissions in Ireland. And they have to reach a certain target as largely dictated by the European Union. And therefore, they might have to bump off a few hundred thousand cows. You know, an extraordinary is is like animal sacrifice to the to the gods of uh, weather in the hope that they will be gentle with us and won't punish us too severely. And we see similar developments across Europe. You know, there has been a farmers' revolt in the Netherlands. There are farmers' revolts in other parts of Europe too, because huge numbers of farms, thousands of farms, could potentially be closed down if EU. Uh, net zero targets are enforced uh, in, in these countries. So so I think people here are, are starting to feel that there's an irrational punishing element to this. Yeah, and it's like um, you, you can't run any policy through top-down targets. And, you know, we knew this. We knew what happened to Stalin's five-year plans. We knew what happened to Mao's Great Leap Forward where he decided everybody was going to put a backyard furnace and make their own pig iron. It, it doesn't work. It has disastrous consequences. But that is exactly the t- type of strategy that the entire globe has taken on this climate change business. And, and you get an institution like the EU, and of course, they take it to some further degree. But we know that it doesn't work. Like, you can't force economic change in that way. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, which you've mentioned, which is nuclear power. I, I'm so intrigued by um green opposition to nuclear power. I want to ask you what you think lies behind that, because I think you're right there. You know, it's sometimes very rewarding to speak to green apostates, you know, greens who have um, lost faith in the environmentalist movement because they recognize how destructive the renewable industries can be in relation to nature. And they also are starting to question why Greenpeace and other movements are so almost religiously opposed to nuclear power, even though it's a very clean form of energy and it would provide abundant energy with quite a small amount of resources. How do you explain that? How do you explain that you have this movement that claims to be obsessively concerned with the destructive consequences of burning coal or burning gas and other fossil fuels, and yet it's opposed to, it is opposed to nuclear energy, which is demonstrably cleaner, better, easier to do, easier to dispose of? What, what do you think lies behind that opposition? I think I think you've got to go back to the 1970s and the um, the sort of fear that that sort of gripped the intelligentsia that they, we were running out of everything. You know, we were running out of oil, but we were going to run out of milk in the corner store. You know, that resources were finite. Uh, it was the old, you know, the Malthusian idea that, that we have a fixed pie of resources and we can't find any more apparently, or we can't make the current ones work harder by being cleverer. So that 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 philosophy stuck in the 1970s, and that was when the old idea of renewable energy was born. It was this idea of energy that would just keep producing without burning, using any more resources from the earth. Well, that in itself, of course, is a fantasy because you 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 use at the very least you use land and capital, which are scarce, but 
but you're also using you know the amount of iron and iron ore and steel and concrete and and then all the the lithium and and cobalt and all those things that goes in batteries they are they're, they're heavy heavy resource intensive things but they they th- it's this idea that this little dream they've got of something that never you know circular economy you can just use this endlessly and at the same time the 70s because you had the fear of uh, of nuclear war uh, you know, which was partly a genuine fear, partly as we as we know was 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 part of Russian or Soviet propaganda at the time was to get the Western intelligentsia to start protesting against nuclear, the nuclear winter in 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 so to you know demoralise the West. All that's going on, and that stuck with them. So that's two twin mentalities. We love renewables, but we think nuclear is dangerous. Has stuck around, and and back then, of course, there wasn't any talk about climate change or carbon emissions it's that's only come in recently and then suddenly you go well hey you want a, a carbon low carbon uh emissions uh form of energy well nuclear is perfect and here's the thing i've looked around the world on this and there are several countries well a couple of dozen countries at least in the world that have effectively got carbon emission free electricity grids right now and and but to do so none of them have done it with wind and solar all of them have needed a combination or either individually just a lot of hydroelectric power. So if you're the Yukon and you've got lots of hills and water and very few people, you can do it all on hydro. Uh, Or you can do it with geothermal like Iceland because they're basically sitting on top of a volcano or something. But if you haven't got those two, then you need nuclear. And and so the countries that have done it, France, Finland, uh, Ontario, in uh, in Canada, you know, they've all had nuclear, and but they've been able to achieve what we're planning to achieve by 2050. They've done it now, through the electricity sector at least, just with nuclear. So why why don't we do it? It's kind of nuts. It's nuts that they reject it out of hand. It is nuts, and I think you're right. It's a, it's a really important lesson on the baleful consequences of the politics of fear. Because as a child of the 80s, I know full well that. The word nuclear, in my, even in my mind, as someone who is very, very pro-nuclear power, conjures up images of you know children hiding under their school desks in case Moscow bombs us. I mean, these things have linger in the consciousness, and I do think for a lot of people, nuclear is a bad word uh, for for because of those uh, campaigns of the seventies and the eighties in particular. Nick, I want to ask you about the ideological imperatives behind the renewable idea or the anti-nuclear idea or the net zero idea. Because as you've outlined and you've written about on your Substack and elsewhere uh, very well, these are impractical ideas. You just cannot shift a very modern, thriving society like Australia or Britain or the United States to wind and solar, you know, these kind of uh, pre-modern forms of energy production. So it's impractical, but there's an ideological element, isn't there, as well, which is that I think one of the reasons there is this green aversion to nuclear power, for example, not never mind fossil fuels, is because they have an aversion to the whole idea of humankind using natural resources. They have an, uh, an ideological aversion. You mentioned uh, the, the Malthusian idea that, that motivates some of these people. They have an ideological opposition to the entire spectacle of a modern human society digging into the earth, pulling out its resources and burning them in order to make life more fruitful and more healthy and wealthy 
for human beings. So there's that kind of underlying misanthropic view as well, isn't there? Yeah, well, it's 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 a sort of uh, romanticism, isn't it? You know, it's the idea that once the earth was in a perfect state of balance and then humans arrived and they started to despoil it and knock it out of balance uh, and, and we have to return it to that wonderful benign state. Well, of course, it never was that way. You know, I mean, there have always been, you know, natural storms and snowstorms and droughts, and it's been a very harsh planet to live on. Um, as Alex Epstein uh, has written very well, um, you know, that actually what, what we've been able to do with fossil fuels or, or this, you know, concentrated, available, cheap form of energy is actually to ameliorate a lot of those things. So, you know, the, the, there, are, there are far few deaths from cold there's more deaths from cold than there are from heat but there are far fewer of both now because we have air conditioning and we have you know cheap puffer jackets everybody can afford a puffer jacket whereas you go back to the last century you know you'd be lucky to afford one coat your entire life so all that's been made possible with cheap and abundant energy so you know that they 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 won't recognize that it's a kind it really is a sort of romanticism that they're locked into you know rousseauian sort of vision of the world and I, I, I don't know how you, you shift that because it's part of the underlying thinking, but it, it doesn't take into account the, the enormous benefits we've had through uh, the use of cheap energy and, and we're able to fuel, we're able to feed the planet, right? And uh, we wouldn't have been able to without, without uh, factory fertilizers and so forth. All those things made possible through energy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think Alex Epstein and other writers have uh, beyond Lomborg as well, have made a very strong case for life becoming far better and far safer the more that we have industrialized, the more that we have uh, modernized. Uh, and I think that that case is indisputable. Okay, Nick, my final question for you. I think two of the big issues of our time in in here in the UK and also in Australia are identity and energy. Because it seems to me on both of those fronts, there is this attempt to turn the clock back so on identity, as we've been talking about, there's an attempt to turn the clock back to a time when people were judged by their heritage, their skin color, their race, rather than by the far more preferable, decent observations of their character and what they can contribute to society. And on in relation to energy, there's an attempt to turn the clock back to this presumed uh, pre-modern wonderful era when the earth was uninterfered with by mankind. And of course, they always neglect to mention that, in fact, that's the era in which people were dying of all sorts of diseases and not living very long and starving to death and being killed in natural catastrophes and so on. So it's in Australia, it seems to me you've had an incredibly important revolt against the identity side of this. And it seems to me it's possible that there is a brewing questioning, if not necessarily a revolt yet, against the energy side of this discussion and the attempt to turn the clock back there. Are you optimistic in that sense about the, the kind of common sense of Australian people holding at bay these regressive ideologies? Well, there's two things there. One, I think we will win the energy debate because we have to and, and it will become inevitable. Like the, uh, the, There is no other feasible way of keeping the place powered if, if we've turned it back in coal. We've lost the coal argument. Incidentally, you know, the coal... We will probably never build another coal-fired power station in this country. In fact, it's hard enough to get a permission to mine it these days, which is entirely ridiculous. But that's that's it. So we'll have to go to nuclear. 
and that argument will be won by necessity. And I've no doubt at some point, you know, the, the, the left progressives will turn around and say, oh, of course, we wanted nuclear all along. You know, they've got a great skill at doing that. But the, 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 the point about the climate, uh, the whole kind of fear of, of global warming and, and, and all that, I don't, I, that's sort of above my pay grade to fix because you just see how this is so inculcated in people in, in, in universities and schools these days. Kids come out, you know, you've got a generation of kids, uh, you know, Gen Z, who are really genuinely fearful about the world. They're as fearful as they were, they were about COVID, which, you know, we'll talk about that another time. But the, so the, I don't know that you could easily shift that fear. But what we can say is, well, just calm down because we can't. We do actually have the ingenuity to fix these perceived problems. And if you think the problem is carbon emissions, well, we can deal with that. You know, if that's what's worrying you, uh, so we can we can fight fear. And I think fighting fear is really the greatest challenge we have at a, at a fundamental level. Nick, thank you very much. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.